The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3b through 5. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. was a short scripture this morning, caught me out in the hall, and I realized, uh uh-oh, I need to get in there. Let me turn to Hebrews here. Let me add my welcome to that of John's. Uh, We are uh, glad to have you here, whether you're in person worshiping or uh, on the live stream this morning. We're glad you're here, and trust the Lord is blessing your Advent season uh, as it gets started uh, last week. Let's, um, let's pray, though, first, and then we'll look at this uh, short passage before we come to the Lord's table. Father, you've told us that your word is living and active. Your word declares that about itself, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can penetrate our hearts, that it can judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts You've used it, Lord, to grow us in grace. You've used it generation upon generation. And we so uh, gather this day with thanks in our hearts for the gift of your word, Lord, that we can each have uh, multiple copies of this in our homes, that we can give attention to it throughout the week as well as on Sunday. We come to it now, Lord, asking that you would take uh, this simple but deep and profound Uh, passage and that you would use its truths to change our hearts, Lord. Lord, some of us need our hearts changed for the very first time. We need to place our faith in in you and others of us, Lord. We need your grace more and more each day in our lives. And we pray that you would uh, grant us uh, the grace that comes from your spirit, uh, the grace and the truths that come from your word that you really would bring about lasting change that through the miracle of your grace, our lives could be lived, uh, Lord, for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Indeed, if you were away last weekend, and I know some of y'all were away last weekend for Thanksgiving, uh, first I would say please know that we did miss you. It felt very funny last week to not be full at the 930 hour. Uh, We missed you, and you missed the beginning of our Advent season um, we're in Hebrews in chapter 1, uh, just the first few uh, verses of chapter 1, and we're looking at this question of who is this child whose birth we celebrate during Advent? The title of the series is What Child Is This? Who Does Scripture Reveal Him to Be? We're looking at that, but we're also prayerfully examining our own hearts in light of who the Scriptures say Jesus is. And answering, or in asking and answering another crucial question, question, are we listening to him 
with humility and submission? Are we carefully listening to Jesus? In light of who He is, are we carefully listening with humility and submission? And last week, again, if you weren't here last week, we saw that Jesus is not a spiritual consultant who's come to give us His opinion of how we should live our lives, and we can take the parts we like and reject the parts we don't like. That's not who He is. He's not a personal assistant who's come to help us achieve our life goals and live our full potential. In fact, what we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 1 here is Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the one who created all things by the word of His power, that He's worthy of far more than just some token acknowledgement of our appreciation. As the writer of Hebrews said in the first few verses... He's the one through whom God the Father has spoken to us. God spoke through the prophets long ago, but Jesus is the one He's spoken to us now through. He's the radiance, the writer says, of God's glory, the exact representation of His being. He sustains all things by the word of His power. He's God in the flesh. And in light of that, We should be listening to Him, carefully listening to all that He teaches in His Word. But back to the question, who is this child whose birth we joyfully celebrate? And not just that during Advent, but also whose return we eagerly anticipate. Because Advent's about both. Who is He? Have we really understood who He is? Or have we missed or undervalued the most wonderful news ever given, ever announced? I was reading this week of something that happened in December of 1903, and it, it was amazing to me to think of, uh, of this event that happened. Uh, my grandmother was alive at that point. She had just been born a couple of years before. But in December of 1903, after numerous attempts, unsuccessful attempts, Orville and Wilbur Wright finally were successful in getting their flying machine off the ground. It flew for 12 seconds. Think about that. 1903, for 12 seconds in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and they were absolutely thrilled, and immediately they sent a message to their sister, Catherine, back in Dayton, Ohio, and the, the message was sent by telegraph, and it simply said this, we have actually flown 120 feet, we will be home for Christmas. And Catherine, knowing how life-changing it was to have, to have you know, someone actually build a plane with a motor on it and actually fly it, she, she hurried to the editor of the Dayton Journal, and she showed him the message, and he glanced at it, and this was his reply. How nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> he totally missed it. Totally missed the big news that man had actually flown. Well, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like that and miss or ignore or undervalue the biggest news ever that Jesus, the Son of God, has taken on flesh and dwelt among us and that He has finished His work of redemption and He's promised to return. We don't want to undervalue that. So that's part of why we're still going to work our way through Hebrews here, through uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 3b through 5. If you look in your outline this morning, we're just going to dive in. Look in your outline. Before we come to the Lord's table, who is Jesus? Firstly, He's the priestly purifier who paid for the sins of His people with His own blood. 
He's the priestly purifier who paid for the sins of his people with his own blood. Look at verse 3. Well, let me read the beginning of verse 3 to kind of set it in context, even though we covered it last week. Jesus, the writer says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's the first part of verse 3. Here's 3b. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's just think about that first phrase. After making purification for sins. What does he mean? What does the writer mean? The writer means this. Jesus has accomplished what no one else could ever accomplish. No one else was ever capable of accomplishing this. Jesus dealt with our need for purification from our sins by giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He paid for the sins of his people and he did so with his own blood. Now, if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know that in Mosaic law, uh, the priest made sacrifices, sacrificing daily for the sins of the Israelites, but the priest was a sinner himself. So he did his work imperfectly. But what the writer would say here is that Jesus was the perfectly sinless one. He was not only the priest who did the sacrifice, he was the sacrifice himself. The Old Testament uh, high priest or Old Testament priest, they had to, to do animal sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. And Jesus was simultaneously the priest and the sacrifice. If you have time... Uh, this afternoon, I want to encourage you, read Hebrews chapter 10. Just, just read the chapter. In, in my Bible, there's a heading that the translators add for different chapters. And the, the heading for this chapter of chapter 10 is simply this. Christ's sacrifice once for all. And the whole chapter is about that. But this is what he says in verse 14. He says, by a single sacrifice, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Think about that. By a single sacrifice, he's perfected for all time those who are being, sacri- being sanctified, those who are being set apart unto God and made more and more holy as they die to sin and live for him. That's the second part. That's not how they get right with God. He's perfected for all time. He has made the sacrifice of himself. His righteousness is ours and his ongoing work in us will transform us for his glory. Jesus is the priestly purifier. That's who is this child whose birth we're celebrating as we look back to the first advent and whose return we're anticipating as we look to the future. He's the priestly purifier. But secondly, he's the exalted ruler who sat down, (coughs) excuse me, at the right hand of God. The second part of that verse 3 that we just read, after making purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After his incarnation, after his perfectly righteous life, after his death on the cross, after his resurrection, after his ascension, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writers communicate something very important here, that after Jesus' work of redemption was completed... He ascended and he took that place of honor at the right hand, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. That's language of supremacy, language of exaltation. It's language that would not have been missed uh, 
on a Jew that was reading this book would not have been missed because the reality is priests did not sit down. They didn't sit down. There weren't chairs in the temple for them to sit. They were always standing. They were constantly offering sacrifices. But here we're told Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father. His sacrificial work was done. It's completed. What was it he said on the cross? It is finished. It's done. Again, back to Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to this. The writer's developing this. He says, every priest, and listen, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And then that other verse, for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see it? This is different than the whole sacrificial system. This is the fulfillment of the whole sacrificial system. It all pointed to Jesus. No more would priests make sacrifices over and over and over again. Jesus has done it once for all. His sitting down, the writer would say, his sitting down at the right hand of the Father signifies at least these four things. It's a sign of honor to be seated at the right hand. It's a sign of authority as a ruler. And it's a sign that his work's finished. Nothing more needed to be done. Nothing more needs to be done. That means that for you and for me, we must never think we could add anything to the righteousness that's been given to us by faith in Christ. Isaiah says all our best efforts are like filthy rags. What an offense it would be to think that we could add something to the record of the one who left the glories of heaven and took on flesh and lived a perfectly righteous life and died an atoning death. What an offense it would be to think that we can add something to his righteousness to make us more acceptable to God the Father. I was thinking this week, actually, uh, it's kind of fun to get on the internet, but man, you can get lost on the internet. I was, I was Googling this, greatest present ever, most expensive present ever. And, you know, you got like sheiks giving $80 million yachts to people. You got France giving us $20 million to fight the English. That was pretty good. But I couldn't find anything that really, that really made the point I was going to make. Imagine if your, father, if your father gave you a gift for Christmas, and it was the most elaborate thing you've ever seen. It cost him everything to give it to you. Cost him everything. And you were to pull out your wallet and go, well, Dad, I, I got a couple dollars in here. I want to contribute to this. I mean, this is just too elaborate. I want to give you a little bit of something back towards it. That's what our righteous acts are like. They're offensive if we're counting on them to gain the favor of God. Jesus has done it all. It's completed. But it's also a sign now, we learn in the Scriptures, that where He is seated at the right hand of the Father, He's interceding for us. Even as we gather here today, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. If you're taking notes, write down Romans 8.34. This is what uh, Paul writes. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8, 34. Think about that. Not just when we're in worship, but when we're in our homes, out in the community, in our schools, in our business. Jesus is interceding for us constantly. As we celebrate his first advent, as we anticipate his return, we need to to live life with the full knowledge of he's interceding for us. As we're facing temptations, he's interceding for us. I love what Robert Murray McShane wrote. McShane was uh, the pastor of St. Peter's uh, Church in in, uh, Dundee, Scotland. He was a great Scottish pastor of the 1830s and 40s. And he said this, and imagine, I mean, this is true. He said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is indeed praying for me. He's saying, if I could live my life with that reality, knowing with that reality that he's praying for me. It changed everything. Well, that's exactly what he's doing. So who is this child whose birth we celebrate and whose return we anticipate? He's the priestly purifier who paid for the sins of his people with his own blood. He's the exalted ruler who sat down at the right hand of the Father and even now intercedes for us. And lastly, before we come to the table, He is the royal Son whose name is superior to angels. Verse 4 and verse 5, Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to Him a Father, and he shall be to me a son. You know, if, if the exaltation of Jesus to the right hand of God in itself, it clearly exemplifies that he's superior to angels. But additionally, what the writer is saying is his name, his title as son of God is more excellent than that of angels. Angels are created beings. Angels are created not to be sons, not to be heirs, but to be servants and messengers of God. If you, if you look at the Scriptures and you say, what do we see angels doing in the Scripture? We see them really doing three things. They're communicating, or excuse me, they're communicating God's messages to mankind. Think of the angels' communication to Mary. They're continually worshiping and praising God. Think of like uh, Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. And they're ministering to believers. But, but what the writer would say here is, in spite of their amazing roles, their significance pales immediately compared to that of Jesus, the royal Son of God. He's going to spend the rest of chapter 1 really talking about his superiority to angels. And we're going to look at that in the coming weeks. But, but the question is, why does he even mention that? Why does it matter? Well, if we had time to set the context we'd, uh, for Hebrews a little better, we'd remember that uh, the Jewish believers that were dispersed were in danger of compromising Jesus' superiority. They were in danger of lapsing back into Judaism. They had lots of persecution, lots of hardships. They're tempted to compromise. If they would just back down a bit, they would just be willing to say that Jesus was just an angel perhaps the best of angels, 
But if they'd just be willing to say that, but he's not God in the flesh, things would ease up for them. Is it that much different for us today? The supremacy of Christ, the superiority of Christ, it brings us into great tension with those around us who bristle at Jesus being acknowledged as God incarnate, as Jesus being acknowledged as the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. Listen to what one commentator commentator wrote. (coughs) Excuse me. He says, One does not have to deny Jesus outright to get along with the world. Rather, we're encouraged simply to affirm that he was one of the very best men to ever walk on this planet, that his ethics were exalted. If one does this, the pressure will be off. That's what the writer of Hebrews would say we must never do. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the priestly purifier. He's the exalted ruler. He's the royal son. As I was thinking this week uh, about this, I want to I close with a couple, of, a couple of stories. One is uh, an event that some of you who grew up here at Lookout uh, in the youth group might remember. Back in the 90s and maybe in the early 2000s, for all I know, they're still doing it, but... Uh, our youth group used to participate in this hilarious game called Bigger or Better. How many of y'all remember that? Okay. <laughs> That's not exactly what I was expecting. So here, here's Bigger or Better. You divide up into teams. The youth group divides into teams. You go all over the mountain. You start at just a random house or a house of someone you know. You ask for a donation of something that the family wants to get rid of. It could be anything. A kitchen utensil, a lamp, a toy, a tool, anything. You take that and you go to the next house. Pick another house and you tell them the same story and you trade it for something bigger or better. And then you go off to the next house and the next house. And you're in teams and when it's all done, at the end of the night, you reunite and you see which team ended up with the biggest or best prize. One year, no kidding, a team came back with a trampoline. (laughs) They won. It's kind of like the message of Hebrews here. When the Messiah came, the one for whom people have been waiting for centuries, when he came, when he came and what he came to do was bigger and better than what anyone would have dreamed or imagined or prayed for. Because he also made an exchange. He exchanged... His perfect record of always keeping the law and loving God with all of his heart. He exchanged that perfect record that he had acquired for our sinful record, our lifetime record of self-centeredness and self-righteousness. That's the best news ever. That we've been loved at our worst. We've been loved, the scripture says, when we were his enemies And now he's declared us righteous through faith in him alone. What a gift. We've been made right with him through no work of our own. That's bigger and better than anything any of us could ask or imagine. And it's in that truth, and it's because of his victory, that you and I come out the winners. So Advent's not simply a preparation for Christmas. It is that. 
It's not simply that. It's not simply looking back on the first advent of Jesus as preparation for his promised return when we'll celebrate not just the salvation that he's given us as individuals, but we'll celebrate his kingdom coming in all its fullness. Before I pray, I want to just read one uh, quick quote uh, from C.S. Lewis about the identity of Jesus, and this will be familiar to many of you. He says this, Each of us must make our own choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. We can shut him up for a fool or spit at him and kill him as a demon or we can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher for he's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. We may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, or adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, indeed, Lewis is right. Each of us must make our own choice. Who is Jesus? We pray, Lord, that during this Advent season that 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 question would be on our hearts. Even for those, Lord, of us who have decided that long ago, we would look and see if our lives are really lives that express mild approval of Him, that undervalue what He's done for us. We pray, Lord, for also for those who have never answered that question yet, that during this Advent season, maybe even this Lord's Day, would be the day that they uh, commit their lives to Jesus, that they trust in Him and His righteousness alone, and that you would bring them into the kingdom just as you've done for us. We pray, Lord, as we joyfully celebrate uh, this Advent season as we eagerly anticipate Christ's return, that our focus would not be on just all the trappings of Christmas and all the shopping and decorations and presents that must be bought, but our focus really would be on the greatest gift we've ever been given in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We pray this in His saving name alone. Amen.